Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com. From St. Louis Public Radio, this is St. Louis on the Air. I'm Jason Rosenbaum. St. Louis officials have struggled for years to craft policies that assist homeless people. And the issue came more into focus earlier this year after city officials broke up an encampment around St. Louis City Hall. Now members of the Board of Aldermen are preparing to debate what's known as the Unhoused Bill of Rights. Among other things, it would change the process for approving shelters, require 30 days notice to break up encampments, and provide space for what's known as intentional encampments. Some of the ideas within the bills have encountered criticism, including a provision exempting people in an emergency shelter, transitional housing, or encampment from laws against public urination or defecation. And others contend any efforts to help unhoused people should be a regional and not a city responsibility. Joining me in the studio is the sponsor of this legislation, Alderwoman Alicia Sonye. Sonye represents St. Louis's 7th Ward, which takes in neighborhoods such as the Gate District, Gravoy Park, and Tower Grove East. Alderwoman, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So the fact that you have brought these bills to the forefront seems to imply that the way city leaders have addressed homelessness hasn't worked. Why do you think what you put forward is a better approach? Yeah, so... You know, for me, first, I think it's important for us to realize how close we are to this issue. I think it can be easy to feel separate from this issue. But coming from the Board of Education, I know that one in five of our children are unhoused um, within our, our public schools. And those are just the children who count. There are many more families who move every single month, who couch surf. Um, so, I, you know, this wasn't just to say that that is city leaders who do it, but this is kind of an extension of the idea that poverty is a policy choice and that as city leaders, we have a responsibility. If housing is a human right, then we have a responsibility to do everything we can to help people get to a place where they can transition to being um, permanently housed. And even though the city takes a lead and in some ways does the bulk of the work and holds the bulk of the weight on this issue that is a regional issue, it's an issue that disproportionately impacts us. And so we have to be reflective and look at what we could be doing better to make sure that we are addressing this issue. Well, we'll get to the whole regional approach later in the show. And there's a lot to get through in in this bill. So I want to talk about what I feel is like the biggest part of it. And that's changing the process to approve shelters. Mm -hmm. So right now, someone has to gather signatures from a certain amount of people who live close to a potential shelter. And this bill would give an entity known as the Board of Adjustment the authority over approving these facilities. Why do you think this is a better way of approving shelters? So right now, if you want to open up a shelter, you have to get 51% of yeses within a 500-foot radius. So I think this, and that process has led to zero shelters opening in the last 15 years. And so 
our job as a city is to regulate shelters, but not to eliminate them. And essentially the process we have in place is eliminating them right now. I think it needs to change for a couple of reasons. Number one, the fact that it's only a 500 foot radius, we know that shelters have a much larger impact than just what's within 500 feet. Number two, um, having to give 51% of signatures. We're holding a higher um, a higher number for shelters than we do for elected officials. To get on the ballot and to run for office, I don't have to give 51% of signatures in order to, to run, you know, within, and then also you're requiring, you're kind of limiting the discussion because when they go, it's just a yes or no box. So if I come to your home and you're not there, I've missed my opportunity to talk to you and connect with you. Or if I come to your home and you're not comfortable coming to the door for a number of reasons, I've missed my opportunity coming to you. And then when you limit it to just the yes or no boxes, when we, when these facilities come into communities, it's very important that there's a conversation. It's very important that it's not just yes or no, that you're able to say, you know, hey, I am open to having you here, but here are some of the things that I think can help to make sure that we are all one community operating together. So the plat and petition process in some ways, it challenges and limits democracy. It holds a higher uh, quota and a higher expectation for them. And it just really puts a very um, limited, narrow window for an engagement of something that's very important. And the plan and petition process is is what you just described, gathering signatures. Mm-hmm. What would you say to the argument that giving the Board of Adjustment the decision-making authority over building shelters takes away power from individuals and people living in neighborhoods. Well, so the great thing about the conditional use process, and I've been through a number of these as alderwoman, is it's not that board of adjustment, that board makes their decisions based on community input. So just like now when you go and collect signatures, people have to check yes or no. Now that facility will provide area to the entire community that they're opening and anyone within that neighborhood can go and can oppose or support the facility opening. Your alder person, your local representative can also go and be open and supporting. So it's not eliminating a public input. You know, we just passed, um, just this past week, for the short-term regulations for Airbnb properties, we just put a process in place and the entire board agreed, okay, yeah, we should transition this to conditional use because this will allow for community input. So I think broadly we're starting to see that the conditional use process is one that does allow for community input, but it is one that puts it in a dialogue and makes it a conversation rather than just a yes or a no. I'm talking with 7th Ward Alderwoman Alicia Sonye about the unhoused Bill of Rights. Earlier, you said one in five children in St. Louis are homeless, and we're talking about thousands of kids here. Mm -hmm. Uh, What is the impact of that, and how do you think this bill or these slate of bills would help that problem? Yeah, so, you know, over the term of working on this legislation that's been, you know, months, I think a working group to start talking about the plat and petition process and the zoning changes that's now been recommended from the Board of Planning and Commissions, because this bill is recommended by them, Bill Board Bill 127 and 128. I mean, it would allow shelters to open. Right now, when you're talking about, again, it's important that we see the intersectionality of this issue. It's not just folks who you see in camps and in, you know, and in tents that are unhoused. There are people who get up and go to work every day, but they're living out of their cars and they're taking showers at the YMCA. There are people who are couch surfing. When you're talking about domestic violence, there's a number of domestic violence shelters who are like, listen, we want to open up our doors. We have the capacity to do more, but we can't get through your process that we have in place. There's, you know, so when you're talking about the children and the families, I think that's really important because a lot of what's happening too is if you're a family, 
those are oftentimes the people who are choosing to stay on the streets because they don't want to have to take shelter but then be separated as a family because there's not capacity for the unit to go. So ideally, this will these bills will make an easier pathway for shelters to open and for shelters to expand to make sure that we are giving these services to people who desperately need them. So you mentioned encampments, and there's another part of your bill that would allow what's called an intentional encampment for unhoused individuals. How would that work? Are there any restrictions on where these encampments could be? So right now, the bill does not establish where an intentional encampment would be. This bill does. Right now, there's a ban in the city of St. Louis where you couldn't have any intentional encampments. Um, After the mayor did the allocation of ARPA funds to intentional encampments, some of the previous board of aldermen came in and put bans in their ward. And so this repeals those bans and then assess the criteria of what an intentional encampment would look like. Um, An intentional encampment is not something we have in St. Louis, but it is a model and it's done in several other places and it consists of various things. Um, What the bill says is that there has to be 24-7 security because the safety of everybody involved is really important. It requires that there's a hand washing station, a porta potty um, and showers um, per 10 people on that facility. Um, It also requires that the Department of Human Services is there and that they are, you know, starting to coordinate services and do that case management and that intake to get folks connected. Um, And so really an intentional encampment, it really goes back to this idea that these folks, the unhoused population are in our communities and either we create a space for them to go or they create spaces for themselves to go. And intentional encampments is a way that the city can create spaces for those in our unhoused community to go and get services that they need and get some stabilization. The Riverfront Times reported on a string of tense emails sent by Abstract Marketing Group, whose offices in Laclede's Landing employ 500 people. And the RFT reported that, quote, the emails from Abstract to the city describe alarming scenes playing out on the streets and sidewalks. Jan Sandweiss, the president of the Laclede's Landing Neighborhood Association, says that if the city is moving to address homeless shelters, it also needs to think of residents and employers dealing with them now. Here is a clip from Sandweiss. The majority of the unhoused on Laclede's Landing are drug addicted or mentally ill. And consequently, their behavior is very erratic. We've had people with a crowbar smashing in car windows. There's a guy that had a meat cleaver. They've um, thrown bricks through windows. So it makes it really difficult and people are scared. What we really need to do is work together to get them the help that they need. What do you make of Sandweiss's comments? I think ultimately I agree with Sam Weiss that we really have to work together to get these folks the things that they need. I completely agree with that. And I think we also have to be honest about the situations that folks are in. Um, She's right. The unhoused population are usually facing a a, a number of issues, whether it's mental health, whether it's it's substance use, you know, it's a number of things. But I think one of the things that we're starting to build consensus on is that if it is mental health and it is substance use, then the way to go is not to criminalize them or to ban their existence but to put them in a place where they can begin to get stabilized and get access to the resources and the treatment options that they need. So uh, another aspect of the bill would require 30 days worth of notice for city officials to break up an encampment. Um, Why do you think more notice is needed? And are there exceptions if there are 
some sort of emergencies happening, perhaps like what Sandweiss just described. Yes. So um, the 30-day notice, I think, is a, is a really critical piece. Number one, I think the fact that we don't have a policy that is clear to everyone involved on how we handle the unhoused, that's a dangerous situation to be in. I think it's extremely important that we have clear policies and clear procedures for how we move on this. And the other thing is, too, if we're interested in serving these folks, then it's not just about sweeping them and moving them from place to place, because that's what's happening now. Now, that 30-day window is came from housing folks who do this work, from case managers, from social workers, from housing providers saying, when you do um, you know, decommission or break up an encampment within three days, you're not giving us enough time to go in and do the intensive case management and do the intake and do the work, do the assessments that we need on those folks to get them to then go transitioned. So that 30-day period, number one, if you get evicted from your home, we get 30 days notice. And so it's kind of to make sure that we're still treating them with human dignity because they are human beings, but it's also to make sure that we're able to allow time for people to connect them to resources so that we're not just shuffling from them from place to place. So perhaps the most controversial part of the bill is involving public urination and defecation. And the language states that someone who, for example, is in a shelter or in an encampment, they wouldn't be cited anymore for doing any either of those things. Can you explain why that language is in the bill? Yes, absolutely. So there's an um, that language, and then there's panhandling and loitering. Um, the idea is to put on the forefront the ways that we are handling this issue and to say that criminalizing this issue does not address this issue. If you are a person who is unhoused and you have to use the restroom, where can you go? Because we don't have many public restrooms. I think most people would say the only public restroom that you may have would be the libraries. They may be the only place or, that or you parks. could go. Right, or parks. Um, but we even parks, we close our restrooms in the parks. We close them during winter. During a time where folks in this community die the most, we close our parks. So it's this conversation of if you're going to criminalize something, you have to give people an issue. And even within the ward that I represent, I mean, if you're unhoused, people often don't even want you on their sidewalk, let alone to enter into their private businesses and use their restroom. So that's not an option for you. But meanwhile, the city that you're in doesn't have any places for you to go. But then also you can be cited and get a ticket if you do go and use a restroom in the places you have access to. And then again, thinking about systems and what that means. How does it impact you as a person who's already unhoused to get that citation on your record, to get that fine that you obviously can't pay, to potentially pay, you know, face some time of being in jail. You, you, you're kind of perpetuating a cycle of poverty and perpetuating a situation where it's harder for a person to get out of it because that is also now on their record. Would this put more onus, though, on city workers to clean up after people that defecate or urinate in public? So two foes. When I was working on the legislation and wrote that in, I think that's also why you do need your safe camping areas, right? Because I think that we do need to establish a place that where we have in the city where you can go to use the restroom, to wash your hands, to take a shower. And so I think it will take more responsibility on our end. But also, I mean, someone is they're using a bathroom right now. So we're decriminalizing. That means it's already happening. So somebody's already responsible. Do you, do you happen to know what extent people are being or, or, or like unhoused people are being cited for public urination or defecation right now? So right now it's all listed under vagrancy um, as far as what the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department, how they report it. So it puts together a slew of, of different things. So you can't really isolate it into one. I am hoping to get that data and that information and have requested it um, to get those number and data specifically on these violations. But I haven't got it just yet. One of the big criticisms from city leaders when it comes to the issue of how to treat unhoused people is that the city seems to be tackling the burden all by 
themselves. And Alderman Tom Oldenburg indicated that no slate of solutions should be done without a regional approach, including tangible buy-in from St. Louis County. Here's Alderman Oldenburg. We need to harness and leverage uh, East-West Gateway and the various members of of that board from a county perspective, right? Um, And the municipal partners that are that are also part of that relationship um, and and leverage, you know, a cooperative policy here. So why can't the city and county work together to deal with this problem instead of city leaders being solely responsible? So, you know, we have to deal in the real world and in reality. And if Alderman Oldenburg or any other city leader wants to start that work on working on regional partnerships, they 100 percent will have my support and I will show up to the table to have those conversations. But are those conversations happening right now? Is anybody doing that work or is what has really happened is somebody has brought to the table some things? The city has a process that's keeping shelters from being open within the last 15 years. The city has a process where we're having to break up these encampments when we're coming. So are we really having a conversation about you know, I think you have to be able to walk and chew bubblegum. Absolutely. Let's have a conversation on regional partnership. But let's also be the leaders that we said that we would be. At the end of the day, this is a regional issue, but it disproportionately impacts the city. Right. I mean, it was right outside of City Hall. Now it's next door at the court building. So absolutely. Let's talk about regional partnerships, but also let's not pass the buck and pass up on responsibility. And let's not avoid our own accountability for what we could be doing to make this process better. We only have about a minute left, but have you spoken with Mayor Jones's administration? on this because from talking with her spokesman, there are some aspects of the bill that I think her administration has problems with. And I don't I think that she wants to see what the final version is before saying she's going to sign or veto it. Yeah, so Mayor Jones has been involved um, in the process for Bills 127 and 128. That was a working group that started just a few weeks after me taking office, and Mayor Jones' um, office has been a part of that and has been a part of the board and the planning commissions recommending those changes. And then Board Bill 26, um, they gave their feedback, they gave some comments and suggestions, and the language was te- tweaked before it was filed. Um, and I also say that Mayor Jones also has the unhoused, uh, she has an unhoused Bill of Rights on her campaign website, so this is something that she's kind of already shown that she wants to do. And she also did do the ARPA allocation of funds to an intentional encampment. So I definitely think that there is some strong alignment there. And in some ways, we've already worked together to identify some of the things that we need to do. But legislation is about all of us getting in a room and really, okay, we agree on this vision. How do we go about getting that done in a way that best works for everyone? And that's an ongoing process. Alderwoman Sonye, thank you so much for joining us today. We'll be following your slate of bills very closely. This episode was produced by Danny Wisentowski and Jason Rosenbaum. Audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. St. Louis on the Air proudly supports local artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis.
Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.